Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name to all of you this morning. Glad for your presence with us. Some of you, uh, many times we welcome our visitors and we're glad you're here. We like the visitors to be here and we welcome you back. And we're glad for the people that show up every Sunday too. That's, that's always a blessing too. So, This morning I would like to continue speaking on um, the Holy Spirit. I plan to speak at least this time and one more time concerning this. This time I would like to talk a bit about the expression of the Holy Spirit in us as individuals. In other words, what can I look at or what gauge can I use to measure in myself how, how much control the Spirit has in my life? How, how, can, I, how can I measure that? In 1 John 4, 1, it says, Believe not every spirit, but try or examine the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, if that verse tells us anything, it would be this. And that is, sometimes this thing of the Holy Spirit and his expression in us as people and, uh, and, and people that we observe is somewhat difficult to ascertain. Uh, to to understand. And that's why John encourages his audience to examine the spirits because there is many and various spirits out there and the verse would indicate that sometimes it's difficult to tell the right from the wrong. And so we have to try these things. When I think of something that's authentic... Uh, and that's exactly what John is talking about here again. The authentic spirit. Understand what that is. It, it's the real thing. You know, in, in, uh, in our everyday lives, uh, we can get by with uh, things that are less than authentic sometimes quite well. Uh, I, I run tractors at my farm that although they may say John Deere on it, not every part on that is authentic John Deere. Some is, a lot of it is, but not everything. And basically, I will use my mechanic to, to decide whether the part I'm about to replace in this tractor needs to be genuine John Deere or not. Sometimes they'll say, you've got to go with the real stuff because that's the only thing that's going to work. But sometimes they'll say, you know, you can buy it over here from this company. I've never had this part go bad. They're, they're, you know, it's solid. So, so I'll stick it in there. And it's not authentic. Now, if I was restoring that tractor and I wanted to make it a pristine real, authentic John Deere, it would have to have a John Deere part. Now, I can get away with that in tractors, but you're not going to get away with that when it comes to the feeling of the Spirit. And sometimes I feel like people think they have the real thing, and it's not. It's not the real thing. All right. Another thing that I would like to uh, just, just say here in the, in the outstart I do not wish to build a biased platform when it comes to speaking of the expression of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And I want to be honest with, with God, with his word, and not be biased. And, it's, and, that, and that's, that's easy to do. It's easy to get biased about it has to be this way. And I think you see a lot of bias, in, 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 especially in this subject, and I do not wish to be that way. 
So if there is a one-sentence summary that uh, could be made about God's motive for pouring out the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era like he has to each individual, I would say it could probably be summed up like this. You know, for centuries he had worked with the, with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. We know that story. We don't have to rehearse that. We, we study about it. We talk about it. You know, it was this theocracy that he attempted. Um, I don't know if I should use the word attempt. He, he certainly, the material was there that it could have worked. But because of the, of the people he was working with, it many times didn't work out very well. If you look at the, at the priesthood, uh, that thing, you know, he traced that all the way back to Aaron. And if, if you read about the priests, the successive priests that we have record of through the Old Testament, many times they were corrupt people. They, they were not a very stellar uh, example of what, uh, what God's leaders should be, I, I would guess you would say. And the law was frequently disbanded and broken and not used and um, unheard of at times. And it seemed that a better way was sorely needed. And we have the, the prophets constantly talking about this time that was coming, that there was going to be something better out there than what the people currently had. And if you wish to, you can turn to Jeremiah 31. I'm just going to read one verse here out of Jeremiah 31. Well, maybe more than one. But in a nutshell, Jeremiah, um, he, he nails it. And, and different prophets will say this, but I'm just going to read uh, Jeremiah's prophecy here. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. But this is the covenant I shall make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, and here's the covenant, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And I could refer to other, other prophecies in the, in the uh, prophet Ezekiel that would refer to that. But it's very clear. The difference is going to be is rather than on a tablet of stone, the law would be in their inward parts. It would be a different type of a covenant. Paul makes this point too several times to the Corinthian church, and there's other verses in the New Testament as well, but the one that maybe we think of is when he says to the Corinthian church, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the, the Spirit of God dwells in you? And there we have it. The Spirit of God dwelling right in the heart of the believer. In the context, many times when, when, it, when the Spirit of God is talked about as dwelling in, in the lives of individuals, many times if you will read the context, it will always say that when the Spirit of God dwells here, the Spirit of the flesh is gone. Those two do not coexist. The Spirit would change people so that they could conquer the desire to break the law and would have the power to live above the law. So the question is, did this happen? Has it happened? Did it happen? It sure did. It happened, and it is still happening. 
believers then and now and all through the church age have had the power to live above the cesspool of abounding sin and to be controlled by the spirit and live above the temptations that are common to man Jesus promised his disciples he said when I leave you're going to have the spirit and that spirit's going to give you power he said I will endue you with power from on high now many many people and I think they do so innocently and sincerely but they when they think of power and many times we'll do this when we think of power we don't think of um, well I shouldn't say what we don't think of what we do think of is a lot of noise and a lot of smoke and a lot of um, show off tractor pulls that's power you know uh, the racetracks, it's power, it's a lot, a lot of noise and smoke and dust and, and it's just that, that power. And, and I think sometimes this translates over and many people, again, I say innocently and sincerely, say, well, you know, the, the spirit that is exuded, the power that is endued upon a person, it, it should be kind of noisy, it should be obvious, it should be, you know, it should be a lot of smoke or whatever. I wonder if that's not the reason we, we have somewhat the drive we hear sometimes that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the proof, the proof positive of, uh, of, of the Holy Spirit is, uh, you know, certain expressions of gifts and so on. I would like to suggest to you that the, the proof of the Spirit in a believer's life is pretty quiet, but it's very noticeable. And I would like to uh, turn to the scripture to see if we can uphold that, that stand. Turn with me to Romans 8. I'm going to look at a few scriptures here this morning that um, give us an idea of what the Spirit does in a person's life. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to read the, um, the complete text here in Romans 8, but... In Romans 7, we have this description of a Jew who is uh, desiring to keep the law, but he finds it in and of himself he does not have what it takes to live above that law, and he finds himself in just this, this perpetual frustration. But in verse 4 of Romans 8, I find it interesting how, um, how Paul puts this. He says, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. So oftentimes we think of the, the law as a negative thing, this thing that just proved to people you can't live up to it. But you know, it was a righteous thing. And he said that righteousness is fulfilled in the person that lives in the Spirit. The other verse I want to just pull out of this chapter is in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? How would, you, how would you tell me, how would you describe to me what being led by the Spirit looks like? Well, there's an interesting verse um, back in, in Luke 4, whenever, right after Jesus is baptized, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and it said he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we understand what happened in that wilderness. It wasn't fun and games. It was not. It was, a, it was a 40 days of temptation, it calls it. Mark puts it this way, talking about the same event. 
he said, and immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness. Now, now, same event, two different writers, two different words. I, w- I would suggest to you that a person that is led of the Spirit, here in Romans 8.14, we could, we could insert the word driven and do no injustice to the Scripture. In other words, a person that is led of the Spirit, when he sins, it doesn't mean he will never sin, but when he sins, he is driven away from that. He cannot continue in that. He is driven toward the things of God. He is driven toward His Word. He is driven toward His people and His program. He has that fire in his soul that Jeremiah talks about, that burned in his bones, and we said, you know, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. He said that the fire just, just welled up within him, and he couldn't. He couldn't keep quiet. He had to talk about it. I think the number... Uh, I'm going to call it the number one evidence of the Spirit in a person's life is that he is a driven person and he is driven toward the things of God. A driven person. Verse 16 says that we can enjoy the witness of God in our hearts that we are the sons of God. The witness of the Spirit. Turn with me now to Galatians 5. This is probably one of the most go-to scriptures as far as evidences of a of a of the spirit in, a, in the life of a person. Verses 16 to 26. I think I'll go ahead and read this. Galatians 5, 15, 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you are led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that those that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with, it, with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So... Right away we find in verse 16 that we're supposed to walk in the Spirit if we wish to conquer the desires of the flesh. And verse 17 very succinctly puts it, but the two are polar opposites. You're not going to do both. I'm going to read to you how the NIV puts uh, verses 19 to 21, the works of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So in other words, it's not hard to ascertain. It's not hard to, to understand. not hard to discern. And there are these, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as you look across that list... um, 
you know, we, we get it, don't we? It, it's not that hard, you know. You just look through and you're like, sure. You know, I, I get that. It's you're not going to you're not going to kid anybody into thinking that you have the spirit if you're if you're expressing these kinds of uh, lifestyles or or um, or attitudes or whatever. Um, as as it says, it's obvious, not hard to discern. But there's one uh, phrase there that Paul ends up with that I think is. Um, is important. At the very end, he says, and the like. And the like. In other words, this list is not, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't name them all. It is anything that would fall into something like this. I think there's an important concept here that, um, that marks spirit fullness and I'm going to pull this from another verse but we're going to bring it and inject it here in 2 Timothy 1.7 it says this for, this for God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind I believe another evidence of the spirit is a sound mind now if you read in your NIVs it will probably say discipline or, or something like that self control and I, I understand that um, perhaps there's reasons that's the way it's translated. But if you would take that Greek word and you will pull it apart and go to the, the, the roots of that word, you will find that the reason the, the King James writers translated it sound mind is quite accurate. It's a mind that is clear thinking. All right? Paul ties the quality of the spirit of power and sound mind together here. If you look at uh, Ephesians 5, which is another passage that, ex- that addresses spirit fullness, Paul tells the Ephesian church to walk circumspectly. Again, you've got to be clear-headed. You've got to be thinking clearly. He says, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And again, that takes a clear mind. I would suggest, and the reason I pull that in here as, as I address this thing of the like... I would suggest that a spirit-controlled person will give a, will have a mind that is discerning. He will he will not just look at that list and say check 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 I'm I'm filled with the spirit. But he will say you know what there might be something here that uh, you know in a, in a, in the 21st century that we live that probably could be added to that list. And because I have a sound mind, I'm going to have the ability to take that and make personal application. And that could be as many and varied as there is people in this audience this morning. But I ask you, and I ask myself, do I have a clear, sound mind? Can I make application to myself? Or do I really need a checklist? Let's now talk about the uh, spirit fruits. And I probably said that wrong. I should say spirit fruit. The other evi- another evidence uh, that Paul clearly lays out here is that there's going to be this fruit. And I would suggest that you know he goes through this, the, the works of the flesh and he says they're obvious and he gives us this list and he says everything that kind of falls into that list, the like. So he says get rid of those things. You cannot have those things. 
Oh, what does a natural man do? Well, he just he he is pulled toward these things. That's what a natural person does. He indulges in all this in this in this list plus. Well, when you when you have a vacuum in your life, it needs to be filled. And Paul says this is the place where the fruit of the spirit will flourish. Once you get rid of all of these works of the flesh, now we have a place where the qualities of the fruit of the spirit can be exuded. And I would like to just go through some of these. I would like to go through this list and just quickly just hit on each one. The first thing I would say that is a quality of the fruit of the Spirit is that it is supernatural. Okay? Um, a carnal man will not be able to express the fruit of the Spirit. It's going to be impossible. Absolutely impossible. It will only thrive in a heart that has crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts as verse 24 says. Someone has broken the fruit of the Spirit down into three different categories, and I'm going to borrow from that because I think, I think it, it holds some, some value. He says the first three expressions of the fruit of the Spirit are somewhat rooted in qualities that are our relationship to God or, or, or only things that we can, we can have if we are true disciples of God. So love, right off the right off the bat, love. You know, world talks about love. I don't have to tell you that the love that is talked about here is quite different than the world's love. It is spirit love. Romans five five says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. That's it. It's a different love. It's the kind of love that loves enemies. It's the kind of love that loves our rough edged brothers and sisters. And it's the kind of love that can love even when that love is not being felt back. That's hard love. That is really difficult love. But the fruit of the Spirit, Spirit love, will love that way. How about joy? Again, everyone wants to be joyful, right? That's not a, that, 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 is a, that, is a, that is something everyone wants to experience. But I maintain that true joy will only be found in the, as it is exercised in the spirit. It is something that sustains us when there's really nothing external to be joyful about. Peter calls it a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, he said, it's a joy that no man can take from you. Again, that's so different than the world's joy. We, the world's joy can be taken away very, very quickly. In Luke 10, there's, a, um, there's an interesting interchange between Jesus and his disciples. The disciples have been sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel. And they came back to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we had a really good time. And they said, we healed the sick and we did all kinds of wonderful things. And they said, here's the thing that really got us going. Even the devils were subject to us. And they were pretty pumped about this. Now, what did Jesus... Jesus did not give them, you know, attaboy, you know, great job. You know, do it, let's do it again. He said, listen, he said, calm down. He said, um, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. But he says, rather rejoice because... Your names are written in heaven. It would almost seem that, in other words, let's back up. 
They were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He said, go preach the gospel and do these things. And they did exactly that. Now Jesus said, don't feel good about that. The reason you're pumped today is because you saw the spirits were subject to you. He said, you need a joy that goes deeper than that. Because not every day will the spirits be subject to you. And they, and they found that happened one time. Uh, they, they went to, to cast a, a devil out of a boy. It didn't happen. They said, what's wrong? Remember that, that conversation with Jesus? It didn't work out that day. He said, you, you need to find your joy in the fact that your names are written in heaven. In Ephesians 5, where it talks very expressly about being filled with the Spirit, it says we will be filled with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. All right, peace. And again, I don't have to talk to you long on this. The peace of the Spirit is one that, as the Bible puts it, passes all understanding. It keeps our hearts and minds. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And, as you well know, know the famous scripture in John 14, where Jesus says, I'm going to leave you peace, but it's not going to be the world's peace. It's not going to just be peace because North Korea hasn't dropped a nuke on us. That's not what it is. It's the peace that's going to be there even when that happens. All right. The second set of qualities in our, in, uh, that is listed here, if we, if we segregate these qualities out into th- groups of three, would be that our, the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit in relation to, our, in relation to other people. So we have long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. I don't have to tell you what it means to be long-suffering. It means to be patient. You know, God has been very long-suffering through the annals of time. He's been long-suffering with you and me. And that spirit fruit should exude through our lives to other people. We should just be long-suffering people. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. Forgiving people. Not allowing grievances to accumulate. I like what, uh, what uh, Paul told Timothy there in, in 1 Timothy. He says, um, you know, Timothy, he said, occasionally uh, there's going to be a, a need for exhortation. But he said, when you do that, he said, make sure you're long-suffering. He said, do it patiently. Be patient with people. He said, it might take a little while. Jesus teaches the, the uh, fruit of long-suffering very well when he gave that parable of the uh, man that, owned, that owed millions of dollars to his master, and he was forgiven it. And then he goes out and he grabs his fellow, show, his fellow brother by the neck and he says, pay me that 14 cents you owe me. It's not very long-suffering. How about Gentleness. Do you like to be treated gently? I'm going to guess you probably do. Do you like to be treated mildly and softly or harshly and severely? I think you know the answer. Gentleness, one person puts it as this, as positive benevolence. I couldn't help but think of, uh, of Barnabas in the book of Acts. I think Barnabas was a gentle person. He got the nickname the Son of Consolation. He was the guy that was that was always there with that person that nobody else trusts. He was gentle with him. He was gentle with Paul when he showed up at Jerusalem. And he took Paul to the, to the disciples there 
And he said, you know what? Paul's changed. He's a different man now. He was a gentle person. How about goodness? Well, I wonder if goodness here in the fruit of the Spirit couldn't be summed up like this. A bundle of long-suffering and gentleness that is put together in shoe leather and serves the people around us. You know, the, um, the young church there in Acts, it said that they were so caught up in their spirit-filled ways that they began to see that the, um, we were talking about this in the Sunday school lesson, about the, um, the way uh, uh, material things can blind our eyes or whatever. And they said, you know what, we don't need these things. Somebody over here needs it. Let's, let's sell what we have and, and give to somebody that needs it. They were, they were good people. They were good people. The third set of qualities, the last three, faith and meekness and temperance, could somewhat be summed up as our rapport among others. Okay, so think about faith. Um, actually, this word faith would probably be better translated faithfulness. So are you a spirit-filled person? Am I a spirit-filled person? That, that is faithful. Are we known as a faithful person? A person that can be counted on? A person that uh, will be at church or will be there helping the friend that needs help? A person that is a man of his word? A faithful father or mother or husband or wife? Faithful in service? Faithfulness. How about Meekness. Meekness simply means this, mild of temper, not easily provoked, patient under injury, not vain or haughty or resentful, forbearing, submissive. You know, meekness is not a virtue that is highly espoused in today's world. You, you know that, I do too. But you know why? It's because our king is not that way either. Matthew 21.5 says this about Jesus when he's riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. He says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and setting on an ass, the colt, the foal of an ass. That's not usually the way kings show up in a meek manner. But Jesus was meek. Jesus also said in Matthew 11, he says, You can come to me, and here's why you can he said, because I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Peter calls a meek and quiet spirit an ornament, and in the sight of God, a great price. Now, I, just want to, I, would, I would just like to talk about this spirit of meekness a little bit. And I want to do this meekly, I guess, but I just want to point this out. Many times, sincere and uh, meaning people, and I, and I don't want to de demean these people, I, I just want to just call this to your attention. When there is a, um, a need to, to, to show the, the Spirit's filling, generally it is not done in the spirit of meekness. It generally is not. It is generally quite a show. John 16, whenever Jesus is talking about the spirit of truth showing up, he says he will not speak of himself. He won't show off, okay? But whatever he hears, he'll speak of. 
And I couldn't help but think of uh, the example that Jesus gave in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 25 of the Judgment Day. Okay, We have this glimpse of Judgment Day. And um, if you, if you took, take those two scriptures and you put them together, you have two sets of people. And the one set says, look, we have cast out devils and we've prophesied and we've done many wonderful things. All right? It seems to me that Jesus didn't dispute that. He said, yeah, you did. You know? that, that, that's fine. That, you did. But, but he says, I, I don't know you. Nevertheless, I don't know you. And then there's another group over here that um, evidently they passed out food and water and gave some shelters to some people and so on. And they did some pretty behind-the-scenes things. And Jesus said, you know, enter into the joy of your Lord. And they said, well, why? What do we do to deserve this? And he said, you, you did these things to the least of the people, and you did it to me. Now, you just think about that. Those people were meek people. They were just doing the humble, lowly, mundane things behind the scenes. Nobody knew about it. And yet that's what Jesus noticed. And the people that apparently were quite loud and, 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 and quite uh, obvious were somehow unnoticed. So I just want you to think about that. Meek, meekness don't, doesn't make headlines. It doesn't. Not generally. Not generally. And yet it's something that people will greatly appreciate. Verse 26 in, in our text here of Galatians 5 talks about don't be desirous of vain glory. Okay? The complete opposite of meekness. Okay. How about the last one? Temperance. We understand what temperance is. Self-control. Paul says at the Corinthian church, he says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. I believe one of the core things that differentiates the work of the flesh and the work of, the, of righteousness is the ability of the righteous man to temper or control his appetites. That's what it boils down to. And we're called to that over and over and over again. And, and Paul even tells the Corinthian church, he says, I even want you to be temperate when you come together to worship. He said, you, you know, you need to have, a, he thinks things need to be done decently and in order. Okay? Now, I believe there's some latitude in what decency and order is. And I'm not going to proclaim that we do it exactly right. Okay? That I will not proclaim. But... Paul is saying that things can get out of hand and we can go past self-control even in our worship, I would dare say. All right, just a few other qualities here about the fruit of the Spirit that I want to just bring out. Spirit fruit does not ripen overnight. If you... If you Go into chapter six and verse nine, and he, you know the thought process continues into chapter six. We didn't read it, but it says, "In due season we will reap if we faint not." What that's basically saying is, is there's a, there's a there's some time here needed for maturity. So I would I would simply like to encourage us, and I was encouraged that you know it can be kind of discouraging to read over that that list and say you know I don't know if I cut the mustard. You know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm exuding the spirit fruit that I wish I was. Well, you know what? Don't faint about it. Just keep, just keep going on. Don't be discouraged. Sanctification is a process. 
But at the same time, fruit does ripen. It doesn't always stay a bud. It does ripen. And so we should expect the same in our lives. Uh, I think it's a shame to see people that are quite old in their Christian faith and still there's just not that spirit fruit there that you would, uh, you would hope to see. All right, another thing about fruit is it takes cultivation. And if you read uh, chapter 6, verse 7 to 9, it talks about sowing and reaping. And it says, you've got two options every day. You can either sow to the flesh or you can sow to the spirit. And that's our job, the cultivation. Every day when we get up in the morning, we have two fields. And we can choose which one we're going to sow, sow to. But he says, don't kid yourself. He says, don't be deceived. He says, God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh and you, and you expect to reap of the Spirit, you are kidding yourself. It doesn't work that way. All right. Growing spirit fruit is also hard, discouraging work. But it's rewarding work. Verse 9 again of chapter 6. Let us not be weary in well-doing. And again, I would like to uh, encourage us as we take stock of our lives and what the Spirit is doing in our, in our lives. Don't be discouraged. Weedy, weedy gardens are discouraging too. But you know what? There's nothing more rewarding than a weedy garden that's clear to the weeds and it's a garden again. That's a wonderful experience. Okay, to, to sum up this, um, this talk, I want to just quickly give you a case study from the scripture of a man that was filled with the Spirit, and yet we don't often think about him as being a person that was that way. And that person is John the Baptist. And just sit back for the ride here, because I'm going to just run through this very quickly. But I want to I I I show you what the scripture says about John the Baptist. In Luke 1, whenever his birth was announced, the angel said to Zechariah, he said, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Okay, so we have that right out of the gate. This is what this man's going to be like. And he goes on to say, he said, he will go before the people in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay? Jesus says about John in Matthew 11, he says, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now that's quite a that's quite a pedigree. That is quite a pedigree. Well, now what was Jesus known by the general public in his day? Well, whenever Jesus is having a discourse in Luke seven about this, he asked his audience. He said, "When you went out to see John, he said, what did you expect to see? He said, did you expect to see a reed shaken in the wind, or a man in soft raiment, or a king?" He said, is that, what you, is that what you went out to see? He said, uh, I tell you what you saw. He said, you saw a prophet. He said, and I say unto you much more than a prophet. But you know, John was a curious and a mysterious man, at least to the elites of his day. He was baptizing there in the river, and it, it was resented by some. And in fact, the Pharisees came out in John 1.25, and they, they asked him, they said, why do you baptize? If you're not Christ or Elijah... Why are you baptizing? And, and they ask him, flat out. So, in other words, they question his authenticity. And then he had this unique diet of grasshoppers and wild honey. 
um, apparently a bit unique. It was, at least it's unique enough that it's mentioned anyway. In, John, in Luke 3, it says um, whenever, they, whenever the people were, were, um, were musing about Jesus here, it says, all the men mused in their hearts of John. Oh, I'm sorry, this is, I'm, I got the wrong reference here. This is about John. It says, all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. So apparently this man um, exuded some qualities that people actually questioned whether or not he was Christ. Okay, so now what about John's ministry? It appears that many people did come to him because it talks about there went out from him from Jerusalem and Judea and all the regions about Jordan. But when it comes to his, the, the few words we have that John spoke to people, he generally was quite pointed. And he used language that probably most of us would cringe to use. I mean, generally we wouldn't just call people snakes. You know, that's, that's pretty, pretty pointed language. And he was also brave enough to go to Herod and, and tell Herod that he really shouldn't be married to the woman that he was married to. That, that takes some bravery too. So, you know, he seems to be quite a, quite a brave man that way. But in John 3, whenever Jesus' disciples began to baptize, some of John's disciples come to him and say, do you know Jesus' disciples are over here baptizing? And you know, you've kind of been doing that. Now they're doing it. And more people are going over here than coming to you. And John says, you know what? I'm good with that. I am totally good. He says, he has to increase, I have to decrease. And his ministry comes to an abrupt halt shortly thereafter whenever Herod has him cast into prison. Well, now, so far this man sounds like a stellar individual. But what happens to John when he's in, in prison? He's in there and he begins to second guess himself. And he says, did I really do what I should be doing? So he sends his disciples away, two of them, and they went to, to Jesus and they said, Jesus, are you the one? Are you, are you the one that I was preaching about? And Jesus said, go back and tell John what you see. He said, the, uh, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. There's evidence here, John, that what you preached about is taking place. All right, after John's death, there's some commentary about what, ha- what people were saying about him after his death. In John 10, it talks about how many people started to follow Jesus after John's death. And, th- and here's what they said. They said, John did no miracle. But all things that John spake of this man were true. When Jesus commissioned his disciples... And the fame of their work was noised about along with their connection to Jesus. King Herod heard of this. And I'm going to read to you what Herod said. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said, and and this person, by the way, is Jesus. And he said that John the Baptist was was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others that is a prophet, or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he said, It is John, who I beheaded, for he is risen from the dead. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now what I want to pull out of there is, you just, we just read how that John did no miracle. Here, come, here along comes Jesus, and he's doing miracles. And Herod said, That's got to be John. 
That's John. I'm convinced that's John. John didn't ever do any miracle. But Herod said, this man is a just man and he's a holy and that man could do miracles. I'm convinced he could do miracles. I know he could. And I don't think Herod was very quick to change his mind on that. So what's the summary of this? Well, you know, John came full of the Spirit. And yet, it says he performed no miracle. To many people, he looked like an eccentric. He lands in prison, his following dwindles, and ultimately, he's beheaded. And yet, the Bible says he had the spirit and power of Elijah. What did Elijah do? Well, Elijah was a man that called down fire on 50 men at a time in 2 Kings 1. He was a man that uh, slew prophets and, and did many wonderful things, many powerful things. He's a man that never even tasted of death. So what's the, what's the takeaway here? Look, again, John was a man full of the Spirit, and yet he was a man that exuded all these qualities we just talked about, the fruit of the Spirit. He was not a man that made a lot of headlines because of miracles. But he was a man that was well known for being a just and a holy man. At one time, in fact, John was asked, he said, Are you Elijah? And he said, No. He said, I'm not. But then Jesus says sometime later, he said, You know what? Elijah came and that man was John the Baptist. The point is, John did not recognize himself for who he actually was. And I really believe that was the spirit of meekness exuding itself in the life of John. Well, in conclusion, you know, the exemption of the Holy Spirit is oftentimes pretty lowly. Oftentimes it doesn't get a lot of press. Not many headlines generally. The infiltration of the Spirit, I believe, is many times slow. And it's a process, perhaps. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Evidences of the Holy Spirit. Where do you find yourself today? Where do I find myself when I analyze my life? You know... We, to, to come full circle, we, we many times enjoy uh, things that happen fast, quickly, and are very obvious. But you know, sometimes when it comes to these evidences of the Spirit in our lives, you know, maybe your children will be the first people to notice that. Or maybe it will even be your dog. Who knows? But you know, those, those, that slow sanctification that God can work in our lives. And as we open ourselves up to the Spirit, remove the flesh from our lives, suddenly we find ourselves almost unknowingly being filled with the Spirit. May God fill each one of you with His Spirit today.